Kings. I'm Askiya Muhammad in Washington, D.C. with Mustafa Ali of the Hip Hop Caucus. And joining us in Los Angeles, we have Ernesto Arche. Yes, still here. You're listening to live election news coverage from Pacifica Radio. Joining us is Mustafa Ali, Senior Vice President of the Hip Hop, Hip Hop Caucus. As we move into this hour, Democrats are moving closer to the control of the House, but not yet. Democrats have so far picked up 12 seats in the House and lost two seats in the Senate. Democrats have also picked up two governorships. One of the important House races that was won by Democrats in New Mexico, the 1st Congressional District, has officially made history. Deb Haaland has been elected as one of the first Native American, as the nation's first Native American Congresswoman following her historic win in the state of New Mexico. With uh, Arkansas ballot issues require voter ID and amendment to the Arkansas Constitution requiring a voter to present valid photographic identification when voting in person or casting an absentee ballot. And that the state issue free photo ID to eligible voters without one. A vote yes would amend the Constitution to require voter ID. CNN reports with estimated 52% of the precincts reported, 79.1% have voted yes. The projections are in that uh, uh, Republican Ron DeSantis will win the Florida governor race. Andrew Gillum, his Democratic challenger, has conceded. NPR is reporting that Florida restores felons' rights to vote. In a key ballot initiative, Florida will restore voting rights to citizens convicted of certain felonies after they have served their sentences, including prison terms, parole, and probationary periods. Approximately 1.5 million people are currently barred from voting from the state because of a past felony conviction. Proposition 1 in Michigan will allow recreational marijuana. CNN is reporting an estimated 40% of the precincts reporting 58.8% have voted yes. Another ballot initiative, North Carolina amendment requires voter ID. Constitutional amendment to require voters, voters provide photo identification before voting in person. CNN reports 86% of precincts reporting. 55.6% have voted yes for the amendment. And NPR is reporting the youth vote is swinging Democrat Exit polls show point toward an increasingly Democratic youth vote. Roughly two-thirds of 18 to 29-year-olds voted for Democrats today. In the previous two midterms, that number was closer to a simple majority. Well, we've got um, um, Fred Harris. Absolutely. Um, our field report this hour takes us to New Mexico, where the first Native American Congress member has been elected. Former Oklahoma Senator Fred Harris joins us. Welcome. Thank you for being with us. You bet. Senator Harris, so uh, before we uh, get to your other thoughts, uh, what are your thoughts about uh, the victory of uh, the first Native American woman elected to Congress? Well, that's a, been a dream of a lot of us for a long time. Uh, Deb Holland was my student many long years ago, and I encouraged her to go into law school. She was an outstanding student. She went to law school as a single mom. She's a, an enrolled member of the uh, Laguna Pueblo tribe, and she is really fitted to represent working families uh, in the in the Congress, and uh, already she's a star. There's uh, all sorts of uh, cameras following her around tonight, uh, and uh, she'll be an outstanding member of Congress. What are your thoughts about uh, what seems to be unfolding in the election returns tonight? Well, I, I was disappointed in the uh, Senate and uh, some of the Senate races, and and. A rather surprised, uh, but I'm really pleased and not surprised that the Democrats will take control of the House. But 
I thought that was absolutely essential. Uh, I just thought if uh, if we didn't win that, goodness knows what was going to happen to our country. Our country is in grave grave danger, and I think we've uh, we've uh, sort of established a backstop now with the Democrats going to control the Congress. Ben Ray Lujan, who's uh, my congressman here in this district in uh, Albuquerque, I mean in New Mexico, it was, uh, as you know, is the chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and uh, he is, he's really done a wonderful job together with Nancy Pelosi and the other leaders in the House, and uh, I think that uh, he is, he'll be joining surely the leadership in the House. He's young, he's Hispanic, he's uh, really well-liked, and he's done a terrific job in uh, getting through this uh, election so successfully. You mentioned uh, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, her name has been uh, used by Republicans uh, as a lightning rod, and the suggestions there are that some Democrats are planning to challenge her leadership, whether the Democrats retake the House or not. Uh, is Nancy Pelosi a divisive issue in the Democratic caucus? Well, you know, uh, what's happened is the Republicans, as they always do, have spent all these years demonizing uh, Nancy Pelosi, and uh, they do that with any Democratic leader in the House or in the Senate, for that matter. But I agree with the uh, Nobel laureate and columnist, New York Times columnist Paul Krugman, who says uh, uh, that Nancy Pelosi is the uh, outstanding speaker, really, of our uh, of our lifetime, and uh, and she doesn't deserve that kind of demonizing. Nobody could have, for example, uh, got through the Affordable Care Act. A lot of the staff members, except Nancy Pelosi, a lot of the staff members for President Obama thought he ought to pull back and uh, and, uh, and 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 very very much uh, restrict what he was going to try to do with health. But Nancy Pelosi was almost single-handedly uh, the person who got him to go ahead and uh, and and that got it passed. She is a, a masterful uh, legislator, and she knows how to pull people together, and she's done that. Anybody, uh, you know, who is uh, in the Democratic caucus who wants to vote against her should do so, uh, of course. And and I uh, I think that they should also take into account what uh, Nancy Pelosi, now Speaker again, Pelosi, uh, has said very recently. She sees herself now as a transitional figure, and I think she's going to be bringing in uh, younger people into the uh, Democratic leadership, uh, and, uh, and and that'll be another one of her uh, great contributions. Ernesto, you're out there on the West Coast with both, um, out in the West, that is, with both Senator Harris and uh, uh, Congresswoman Pelosi. Uh, how's the things looking out there? Yes, most certainly. Yeah, we, you're actually correct. I am here on the West Coast, and, um, you know, we're watching things pretty closely and um, it appears that it's not going to be the blue wave that people had expected, at least for the Senate, which is looking um, a little bit tough for Democrats. Even in, in Arizona, uh, the Democrats are behind in the Senate. Uh, McCaskill is now getting crushed in Missouri, looking like we might have a either 55 to 45 or 56 to 44 uh, breakdown in the Senate. And Scott's lead in Florida just jumped to 148,000 votes. So, um, you know, while the House appears to be, you know, we still have uh, polls just closed here in California at 8 o'clock, so about um, 10 minutes ago, and we'll start getting some initial results in about 30 to 45 minutes. But uh, up until then, of course, there's, a, there's several uh, House seats that um, are expected to, you know, transition over to to, uh, to Democrats in the House, which might give them the, the 23 um, seats uh, needed to take over the House. But um, one thing I wanted to ask uh, Mr. Harris is, um, uh, you know, 
you know, what what do you attribute this, um, uh, you know, the lack of the the blue wave here tonight? Uh, you know, we were expecting, um, you know, the Senate to to end up much better than it has. Well, I think it was the uh, uh, caravan primarily. I think with those terrible uh, tactics on, on the part of the president, uh, racist and and also uh, spreading fear, I think that had considerable effect. I think it had effect particularly in uh, Florida, his many visits there. Uh, and, and so uh, we see it primarily in the Senate and uh, governor's races, but uh, I think it may have cut us down some on our numbers in the House, but they're, they're still going to look awfully good, I think, by the time those California districts come in Democratic, as I, I expect a good many of them to do. Right. So we, we've kind of jumped around a little bit uh, before. I think earlier a couple of our guests were mentioning, well, it, it appears that the uh, the fear being stoked around the migrant caravan is having a negative is not having the impact that uh, Trump had hoped it would have, but now we're saying that well maybe it did have an impact on some of these Senate seats. Um, you know, I mean, is it seems that immigration is still such a huge issue, and we we've talked to so many different guests over the last three four hours that have mentioned you know it's it's one of those. Um, one of those issues that uh, that Republicans have been effectively been able to use to divide working class people. In other words, hey, these these immigrants coming from poorer southern nations are going to take away the jobs that you so desperately need. They're going to take away some of the the resources that are so that seem to be so scarce in terms of governmental. Uh, you know, governmental services and programs and such. Um, you know, how, 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 for how much longer will these arguments be so effective in dividing uh, voters and in dividing working class people? It's the most worrisome that Senator Fred Harris is in. I think we, I think is that will. a, uh, he, he was, he's at a party actually, and, uh, we were just going to say before the line was cut, uh, we're going to let him go back to the celebration that's beginning there in New Mexico. But uh, the technology intervened in our behalf, and so we don't have to bid him farewell. We're grateful that he was able to talk with us. We're going to talk about environment. We're going to talk about the environment next. And uh, one of the hopes in this election has been a number of ballot measures as well as green-oriented candidates who could put the environment on a better path. Harvey Wasserman is an historian and host of the California Solartopia program on w- on KPFK. And we are happy to have Harvey Wasserman join us. Thank you for being with us. Can you hear us, uh, Harvey Wasserman? I can indeed. Yes, I can. I've been listening to you. Oh, great. All right. All right. Welcome to the show, Harvey Wasserman, my KPFK well, colleague. Wonderful. It's great to be with you. And uh, my California Solar Topia show is going to be buzzing with uh, environmental news from this direction. I'll tell you that. What are some of the biggest issues that, um, that, that environmentalists are looking out for? Well, the number one issue is the, is the climate, which is completely related to energy, which is completely related to what I call King Kong, coal, oil, nukes, and gas. One of the things you have to understand about Trump is he's a fossil nuclear guy. And uh, one of his primary functions has been to stand in the way of the transition, to prevent the transition from uh, coal, oil, nukes, and gas to wind, solar, batteries, uh, and all the and increased efficiency. And this is actually the number one economic and ecological battle in the world. And, uh, and Trump is in there representing, um, you know, the old dying fossil uh, nuclear industry and of course it's killing the planet and we, we just lost an, an immeasurable uh, uh, situation in Brazil because uh, this guy, uh, you know, the fascist who won there is going to start tearing down the rainforest so, and also handing out uh, oil and gas fees. but the big issue in the United States is energy, it's totally related to global warming and it's totally related to the transition to renewables and the irony is that renewables are now much cheaper 
than than even coal and and oil and gas now. And so, if you have it, what what the Republicans, the old Republicans, advocated, which is a free market in energy, we'd be transitioning way way faster to renewables. And what you have with Trump and a lot of the people who are in Congress um, is barriers being put up uh, against this transition to clean energy, which is our, our basic hope for solving the global warming problem. Well, Harvey, this is Mustafa. So um, climate is definitely a huge issue uh, for folks both in our country and outside of the country. In Washington State, there's an initiative that's on the ballot um, to put a price on carbon. Um, so I know a lot of folks have been focused on that. And if we're really going to be able to transition and move to what we hope to be 100% renewable energy, we have to also make sure that those who have been impacting communities across the country, but especially our most vulnerable communities, um, are paying a price. Um, are, are there some of the ballot initiatives that you think will be helpful uh, in helping us to move in that direction? Well, there's, there's something that have to happen. I mean, basically, the, the, what we have to have is not only a carbon tax, but a thermal tax. Because the, the carbon is, is important, but you also have coal and nuclear plants that are putting out tremendous amounts of heat. And so in the coming two years, we have to develop legislation uh, that will answer that. We're going to win some on the state level, especially in California, uh, where you know we, we have taken the steps towards um, uh, more efficient cars and mass transit and things like that. And California is 10% of the country uh, in terms of population and, and more so in terms of the economy. And we're, so we, with this, you know, this basic... Uh, fossil fascists in the White House, we have to take the steps uh, in, on a state-by-state basis. It's going to happen in New England, too. There will be some other isolated states, Minnesota, perhaps, that will leap forward uh, with renewable energy. But the, the whole carbon uh, situation and, and greenhouse gases and global warming is tied in to the transition to renewables. And the irony is, the great irony on the left is that we now have the econo- all the economic issues uh, arguments on our side, because wind and solar have come in so much more che- more cheaply, and are now also, of course, producing more jobs. So yeah. th- this is the, this is the great transition of the next two years: is getting off fossil fuels and the politicians who back them, and into renewables and the the politicians who back that industry. No, uh, I, and I'm, I'm going to say, go ahead, um, uh, Harvey Wasserman. When I uh, I went to school in California, and uh, I recall um, so long ago that California uh, politicians were at that time smog deniers, and uh, it was yeah. it was it was a it was really a, a a very air polluted state, and you could see the vapor from outer space, and you could just see it hanging over all the basins like Los Angeles, the Southern California basin, and what have you. Um, how? Yeah, that's. No longer the case. And I've got to tell you, two environmental victories that we can claim credit for that are incredibly important have saved millions and millions of lives, including the people listening to this show. One is getting lead out of gasoline. Leaded leaded gasoline was absolutely uh, apocalyptic, and it was killing people in L.A. left and right, for God's sake. You know, not only could you not see in L.A. because of the smog, but you couldn't breathe. And it wasn't just the particular matter. It was the lead in the gasoline, which we have removed. And the second battle that has been so important has been to cut down the number of nuclear plants. In, uh, in 1974, Nixon said there'd be 1,000 reactors in the U.S. by the year 2000. And in the year 2000, there were 104. We're now down to 98. And uh, this is the, uh, you know, we are fighting desperately to shut these last reactors, which gets more dangerous uh, by the minute, and to replace them. As I say, with wind and solar, is and, there uh, is is there a chance that there can be a wave similar to that environmental wave that took place 40, 50 years ago in California, now beginning around the environment? Yes, I mean what, what we have to do now. For example, Ohio has a ridiculous clause in the Constitution, uh, uh, in the code that that bar, essentially bars wind power, and we are standing on the brink of four billion dollars worth of wind energy in northern Ohio, which is actually a great place for wind energy, but for one sentence in the Ohio Code. And sooner or later, that's going to break. Uh, we are literally 
and there's a dam that's about to break on this technological revolution in wind and solar that's every bit as big as the uh, as the internet revolution that happened in the 90s and early 2000s. And politicians like Trump and these right wingers with all this coke money, you know, the coke money is basically fossil fuel money, and they are the ones that are preventing this transition. And in the next two years, we have to make the Democratic Party completely um, uh, committed to the transition to renewables. And that will solve the global warming problem and also solve the employment problem and the economic problem. Because there's a tremendous amount of economic gain and of employment gain that will come with the transition to renewables. And and like I say, Trump uh, and the Kochs and uh, Adelson, all these other right-wingers, are basically fossils. They're fossil, they're fossil fuel guys, and that's that's the dam that has to break, and we've got to do it in the next few years because we are out of time and we are really on the brink of losing this planet. Uh, and thankfully, you know, the best of times, worst of times, yin and yang. We do have the solution. It's a technological solution. It's an economic and employment solution, and we've got to win it. Well, you know, we were very blessed that we've had a number of new progressive candidates who have now won office. Uh, You know, we mentioned earlier about Deb Holland and the, you know, her stance. She actually ran on a platform, an environmental and climate platform, along with a number of other issues. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York, also in her new Green Deal, um, is very focused Um, as well. And then, of course, our sister in Minnesota, who also is going to win, um, Ilan Omar, um, who, um, you know, has stood up to the pipelines and and others um, and has a very progressive agenda uh, and was able to build a huge coalition of individuals, young people, uh, environmentalists, uh, folks who uh, also are focused on renewable energy and renewable jobs in, in the green economy. Um, so we have some some new champions with some new energy, um, and it looks like the Democrats are also now going to be uh, the ones who are in charge of the House. Um, so that means that there will be additional pressures that will be placed on these agencies in relationship to their budgets um, and making sure that they do the right thing. Also, they'll be in charge of the committees now, um, and that will mean that many of these secretaries and, and agency administrators will have to come in. And, and be able to share the decisions that they are making and, of course, um, be held accountable. Um, so I right. think it's a very exciting time. Well, the great thing is that we have the – it's hard for me to say this, but we have the money behind us mm-hmm. because this is, the, this is the industry of the future. Well, we do, I mean, my focus in my California Soratopia show is to make Los Angeles the world's first solar megalopolis. It's a trillion-dollar undertaking. It's totally profitable. It's where the jobs are. So we have a confluence here of saving the earth, saving employment, and saving the economy. And that we, we and the money should be behind us. This is a huge transition from fossil and nuclear fuels. And i got to tell you, the number one thing that has to happen, and it's really scary, is getting these old reactors shut down. We have 98 atomic reactors, each one of them capable of a Fukushima. I wake up every morning praying that we get them all shut down before the next catastrophe. And it's a big deal. It's very difficult. we got two here in California, Diablo Canyon, that need to shut down, uh, and, um, and that's the race against time. But there's absolutely no doubt that the, the big money is going to shift to renewables, and we've, gotta, we've just got to break this blood clot, this dam uh, of these fossil politicians like Trump and the Koch brothers who are stopping the transition, and, and we can get there. Harvey, this is Ernesto at KPFK. Maybe you can give us a, a really brief overview or, or a summary of um, the victory at San Onofre uh, with the nuclear uh, uh, generating plant there and the yeah. challenges that, that still exist at um, at Diablo Canyon in San Luis Obispo, which is about, um, oh, I don't know, what, 600 miles? Yeah, a few yeah, hours. Yeah, four hours north of uh, LA. As the wind will blow, God forbid, if there's yeah. an accident. So San Onofre two reactors between L.A. and San Diego on the ocean, literally on the ocean, like 100 feet. And uh, they made some mistakes there. Our, our movement was able to capitalize against all odds. We forced those two reactors to shut. Thank God. And, the, you know, the environment is restoring. And uh, there have been absolutely no blackouts, absolutely no impact on the supply of energy, which is true nationwide. There's not a single atomic reactor in this country that couldn't shut. 
with zero uh, impact uh, on, on the supply of electricity. We have these two terrifying reactors up north uh, at San Luis Obispo on the ocean, which are surrounded by 13 earthquake faults. God forbid. And, and the, the San Andreas is, is uh, 45 miles uh, from easily within striking distance of these two reactors. And if they blow, you know, uh, the, the radiation will apocalyptically blow into L.A. within five hours. And there are reactors like that at Indian Point in New York, uh, uh, Calvert Cliffs uh, near Washington, D.C. All over the country, uh, our lives are threatened by these commercial reactors that make no economic sense anymore. Every reactor in this country could shut immediately with no impact on the energy supply and with a, um, a huge um, boost to the renewable energy industry. For Harvey example, Wasserman. in Ohio. Yeah. Harvey Wasserman, historian and host of California's Solartopia program on, w on KPFK Radio. I want to thank you for being with us. Hey, it's my honor. Keep up the great coverage. I've been listening right along. Thank you. Joining us now is Paul Rosenberg. He's the chief editor of Random Link News. He writes extensively about the intersection of democracy and progressive movements. Thank you and welcome. Yeah, that's a senior editor. Senior, not chief, senior editor. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. That's sort of a, uh, uh, when I moved out of being uh, the day-to-day -day managing editor. Ah, got it. Okay. Well, okay. what's the impact of Democratic wins and even losses in the Senate on the progressive agenda? Well, um, I think, you know, uh, Harvey was just talking about some of them. Uh, uh, certainly the, you know, the, the uh, focus on, uh, you know, transitioning uh, more quickly to uh, renewable uh, and getting rid of, uh, of, you know, fossil fuel and solar uh, energy as quickly as possible. That's certainly going to be, you know, that's certainly going to be on the agenda in the House. Uh, uh, how that works out on the national stage is uh, anybody's guess in the next uh, two years. Uh, there's a lot that's going to be happening at the state level, as he said. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, there, there's been, uh, you know, the overall results, I think, are, are, are positive, but they could have been Obviously, they could have been much more positive from from what we saw this uh, you know this, this go round of uh, uh, the election that you know the results are still coming in. Uh, but I think you know uh, I concur with, uh, with with what I heard of what uh, Harvey said about uh, uh, you know the the general direction that we're going. I would just say you know in terms of what I've been looking at here in California. Uh, one thing is that uh, the California is, needs to take a, a stronger leadership role. Uh, we, you know, we've still got too much influence of the fossil fuel industry here in our state. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Jerry Brown did not go far enough in terms of, uh, you know, uh, initiatives to uh, get rid of fracking or, uh, you know, begin get rid of getting rid of that. Uh, there were proposals about protecting, uh, you know, uh, communities where, uh, you know, that we have wells being drilled uh, too close to uh, vulnerable communities, uh, too close to uh, schools, too close to hospitals, these kinds of things. So, you know, there are proposals out there uh, that could really begin to, uh, you know, transition much more aggressively and uh, he basically Brown was not willing to look at the production side and we need to have that focus on the production side as well as uh, the you know the, the the side that uh, Harvey was focusing on which is you know it, it looks better and better in terms of what we're doing as a uh, you know as, a, as an energy market, but as long as we keep producing uh, so much fossil fuel within California, uh, we're we're not really you know making the progress we need to make. So that's going to be something that's on the state level agenda for California, and hopefully that's something that will you know will be addressed in the next two year cycle. 
and you know, th this is Mustafa, you know that uh, Colorado has Proposition 112, uh, which is focusing on what you were just referencing around uh, fracking and uh, right. the distances between schools. You know, now there's that 2,500 feet buffer that has to be in place, right? Uh, which is so critical because we know that vulnerable communities, communities of color, low-income communities, and indigenous populations are the ones who are being impacted they're the ones who are getting the exposures based on the locations and then of course uh from the air emissions once they're put into a uh you know through a refinery process if you will right, um, right. so uh, same thing here in california i mean it's the exact same kind of situation yeah without a doubt but you know the flip side of that also is because you know um you look at arizona arizona is now talking about one of their ballot initiatives is moving to 50 percent renewable energy by 2030 2032 i can't remember the exact year um, which is extremely important and we'll see if that um actually passes uh, but we also have to make sure that those communities who are often forgotten uh, when we have a renewable energy conversation uh, not only have the opportunity to get jobs, um, you know, as workers in these, um, you know, opportunities, but also to own their own businesses. So that has to be, as we have this new Congress that's coming in, as we have new folks who are moving into the state houses and these governors, we need to make sure that that's also a part of the conversation uh, as we uh, talk about creating this new green economy. Right, right, right. The, the price of oil reports have been really, I think, you know, some of them, some of the most uh, comprehensive in terms of connecting all the dots. And I think that, you know, we need to be looking at, you know, pushing the uh, ideas of the people who have put the most different parts together and giving those, uh, you know, before the different uh, bodies, you know, whether it's in the state of California or in Congress. Now that we've got the House, that's the kind of conversations that need to be having in Congress as well, because having the principle of a just transition as a key part of the climate uh, uh, initiative is really key. I mean, that's where you're going to get states like Ohio and Kentucky, these places that are really entrenched in the old economies. How you get them to move is by ha having the conversation about a just transition move to the center of the agenda. So that's something that's going to be really important. No, I, I totally agree. You know, it's interesting as we begin to get a better uh, idea of what the map is looking like. And, and as I'm taking a look at some of the places and some of the decisions that voters are making, it, it's, it's quite interesting. Uh, when we look at Ohio, we know the impacts that are happening to the Great Lakes. Uh, and for folks to make some of the decisions that they are means that they're putting a lot of their livelihoods in jeopardy. Um, when we look at some of the decisions that are being made in North Carolina and South Carolina after the hurricanes just rushed through and caused literally hundreds of billions of dollars once we total everything up from the insurance side and from the rebuilding side and so forth. And then when you look in Florida, and, you know, we've had this red tide, uh, the algae um, that, that has been, you know, impacting, um, you know, a number of the water bodies that are there. Uh, sometimes I think some of the folks who are running are just don't know how to share, um, you know, the totality of both the impacts and the opportunities if we clean this up. Uh, how do you feel about that, Paul? Well, I, I agree completely. I think that, you know, the, 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 the problem that we faced in the past is control of the narrative, the framing narrative. This is what Republicans have been, you know, excelled at and, uh, uh, you know, for a long time, there's been the situation where uh, Democrats, what they do best is actual reality-based, uh, you know, solutions or, or, or programs and policies. And they're not always great because they're compromised because of where money comes from and many different things. But, uh, but when they do stuff well, what they do well and what they do at least adequately in you know, in some cases, uh, but they, they do deal with, you know, dealing with problems, with, with trying to come up with solutions. So, I mean, that goes all the way back to the New Deal. And, you know, uh, I guess, you know, uh, the, the thing that uh, Roosevelt said is just try something. You know, if something doesn't work, try something else. But, you know, try something. And, you know, and so it was not very ideological 
uh, from the beginning. It was, you know, pragmatic. What can we do that can solve problems? And that this is, you know, this is sort of the same thing that Democratic Party has been about all of that time. And, you know, for better or for worse, because, you know, the problems that they're solving are not always ones that are actually there. Sometimes they're ones that are totally driven and defined by the Republican control of the narrative. And the Republicans, what they excel at is controlling the narrative. And what we've got uh, this time in this election turned to, to this point of total absurdity where you had uh, Republicans claiming that what they were doing was uh, what you know the Democrats' policy had actually been. You know, they're going to save uh, uh, pre-existing conditions, which is you know the essence of what the Democrats had done in health care. And you know, you you get this uh, uh, also, I guess, uh, to a certain extent, with the economy, because basically what the Republicans are running on is. Uh, preserving the uh, Obama economy, because, you know, it was basically uh, uh, the Obama approach to the economy that produced this slow but steady progress that now, you know, the Republicans taking take credit for after, you know, until uh, uh, Trump was elected, uh, they said was uh, all phony statistics. And now suddenly they take credit for it. Paul Rosenberg. So that, that's that, that's sort of the, you know, the place, I think, where we are now. Paul Rosenberg, senior editor at Random Linked News. Thank you for being with us. Okay. Paul Rosenberg writes extensively about the intersection of democracy and progressive movements. If the earth could fly away, could you see her flying straight through space and time? Leaving all humankind behind If she could fly away If she could fly away So far away If the earth could run away Could you see her gathering All the trees and plants All the animals all the birds and fire, every creeping thing, they have never been her foe, never harmed her blessed soul. If she could run away, if she could run away, so far away, then she'd be running for life. Oh, she'd be running for her life, running for her blessed life. Oh, she'd be running for her life. Oh, she'd be running for her life, running for her blessed life. And we're back. As we say during any election, I'm Askia Muhammad, and I'm joined by Mustafa Ali, the Hip Hop Caucus, and Ernesto Ache in Los Angeles. It's about the young vote. Not only do we wonder what will take to make young people vote, but we ask about what kind of world are we crafting that they have to live in. We have a couple of young people with us. Yannette Amuel, Emmanuel is a student activist and member of the Maryland NAACP. Viraj Patel is also a student activist, and Chris Bangert Drowns is a producer with this radio station. They are all students or former students at the University of Maryland. And uh, we got the young caucus here going on. I, I probably, uh, no, I, I couldn't, I couldn't. I'm not older than all of you put together, but. <laughs> It'll probably be close. It's, it's good. You're part, you're part of it, too. Do young people believe that elections can make a difference? Now, that's a good question. Yannette, do you want to take that one first? Not to put the pressure on you. Oh, okay. Yannette, uh, turn your radio down, and then you can take the next question. <laughs> Barash, why don't you answer that? I mean, personally, for me, when it comes to voting, uh, for a lot of my life, I've kind of been disillusioned because I think that 
a lot of the institutions, especially ones that are involved in politics, don't really have the interest of the majority of Americans. They only want to uh, serve and please a certain segment of the population that uh, have control over a lot of things like capital and other sorts of uh, um, social constructs that, 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 that create power in our society. But I've slowly been coming around to the idea that voting is something important, even though it makes a difference at the margins and it's something uh, that is a small effort in the about in the whole scope of civic civic engagement that Americans can engage in. But uh, it is something important for protecting our people and making sure that they are not targeted by uh, politicians who are out to take advantage of marginalized populations. Hmm. I'll, I guess I'll go next. I. I mean, I, the, I voted for the first time in 2016, even though I've been eligible to vote since 2013. Um, and, I mean, that's that's kind of like the Bernie Sanders phenomenon. It's like I saw somebody who actually seemed to skew the traditional um, political class, and, I you know, I, I embraced that. I liked his politics. Um, but I think, like Viraj, I've always been somewhat um, uh, suspicious of voting as a tactic. But I think I have a, you know, I have a background in organizing all three of us on this call, including uh, Yunette. Are, are student activists and student organizers. And from an organizer perspective, when we vote, it's not just about choosing our representative, it's about choosing our targets. It's about choosing our organizing targets. And, you know, Democrats have to be held accountable by certain groups of people. And if we can get Democrats into office, they may not be the best people or do the best things, but they're more accountable to people like us. And so from an organizing perspective, it's, it's strategic. It makes sense to vote for people who are slightly left, even if they're not all the way left, but like, like we might want them to be. And then, Emmanuel, do young people think that elections can make a difference? Um, I work in the Maryland General Assembly, so uh, this was my first year, and first year going through session, and I realized how important voting is, not just for the governor, but also for every local election, uh, your state legislator, your county council, uh, your state's attorney, everybody is really critical to uh, your everyday life. And if it doesn't affect you personally, it affects someone that you care about. And so not only do you have to worry about who you vote in, but how, you know who your friends also vote in, because when it comes down to passing certain bills, especially with the, we had the crime bill this past session, and it was down to uh, a couple votes. And it's important to have people in those seats who will vote the right way. Um, even in these other committees and other uh, seats. And so uh, this is the first year that I really realized how critical our local elections are. Yeah. And, you know, I work with literally thousands of young people every month. And today I had my, my phone was just going crazy with folks just sending texts saying, I voted, I voted. I think especially for uh, young people of color, they realize how um, important their vote is in the sense that it helps to determine who's going to be the sheriffs, who's going to be uh, the police chiefs in many instances, who's going to be the mayor. So sometimes we get so focused on who's going to be the senators, who's going to be the president, these types of things, that we forget about the power that we actually have. And, you know, I'm also blessed that there are so many artists who are also making sure that they are sharing why they think getting engaged in the civic process is important. And the thing that I often share with my young brothers and sisters, I used to be young, you know, people think I'm much younger than I actually am, is that when we don't see folks um, who represent our values, then we have a responsibility that we should run for office ourselves. And I think that's the beauty of what we're seeing this time is that so many young people said, you know, I'm going to run for office, um, you know, at the local mm -hmm. level, the county level and the state level. Um, so that's one of the reasons I think that we're beginning to see this shift is that people are not necessarily um, running for a party per se, but people are running to make sure that things are different in their communities. How do you guys feel about that, especially the fact of young people not just waiting on someone else, which I know many are not, but actually mm -hmm. taking up the mantle and doing it yourself? I, I think you really bring up a good point about um, the political parties in particular where I think a lot of young people, when they think about the Democratic and Republican divide, it's kind of the same old story and uh, it's rehashing of the same issues. But I think this election we did see a lot of young candidates who are bringing new energy, new ideas, new perspectives into politics, and they are representing a larger segment of our population. And I think that's in part why there's been so much of a turnout for this election tonight. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I agree. Um, and with the NAACP, we partnered up with Out for Justice in Baltimore City, and we focused our get-out-the-vote efforts on the uh, reentry community. And what I found out is that um, even though the law passed in 2016 allowing felons to vote in Maryland, there was a lot of people who didn't know that they had the right to vote, and that was including parole officers, poll workers themselves, who weren't aware that uh, felons had the right to vote in Maryland. So we rented a shuttle, and we went out the county in both Baltimore City picking up people to go register to vote during early vote. Um, and what, I, you know, what I've seen is a lot of these canvassers and a lot of these elected officials have been focusing their efforts mostly on the people who always vote or are already registered to vote, but didn't really focus their efforts more on the people who are directly impacted by these issues and getting them to not only vote but understand why it's important to vote. Um, and understanding how, especially if they've been impacted by the criminal justice system, what role the state's attorney plays, and how do we hold the state's attorney accountable, um, and what to look for in someone who's running uh, for state's attorney. Um, and these are all important things that we need to moving forward, need to educate people on, and the real work starts tomorrow. Yeah, that's excellent. I, I wanted to chime in here, uh, maybe offer a little bit of uh, the take of, uh, of, of youth and millennial voters uh, from the West Coast, from Southern California. And I'm, uh, this is Ernesto from KPFK. And I completely <coughs> agree with what Mr. Ali was mentioning about just uh, a new wave of people, <laughs> maybe not the blue wave that we were expecting tonight, but a new wave of young people that are, are becoming involved in politics. And yet they're not afraid the way, um, you know, I'm, I'm 40-something, let's just leave it at that. But in our generation... We were very afraid of uh, what we considered just the behemoth of um, of, of politics. It, it wasn't part of our culture. Uh, uh, you know, speaking for a you know a Chicano that was growing up in the early '90s, you know, we didn't uh, we didn't feel like it was relevant to us. Uh, we felt very disempowered by the political system. It had nothing to do with us. It was um, you know, as I mentioned, it was irrelevant. And so nowadays, you see a lot of people. Um, and I think one of the, the the youth, and I just do want to acknowledge that these are three extraordinary youth. I mean, you guys are organizers. You guys are involved in um, in politics already. I mean, that's wonderful. Um, but at the same time, maybe not um, reflective, really, of, of the great majority of millennials and young people that I see here in Southern California, since I, I am a, a field reporter for KPFK, um, that are very disenfranchised by the, um, by the political system. And, and maybe not disenfranchised, that might not be the right word, but they feel that it's irrelevant to them that, hey, you know, if, if I am saddled in, in, uh, in debt, in college debt, um, I have very few job prospects, and the job prospects that I do have don't pay me a living wage. Um, I'm living at home until I'm in my late 20s, early 30s. It seems that, you know, my question to, to all three of you is, um, you know, what are your peer, what's the situation like for your peers that might not be as organized politically? I mean, um, oh, Yannette, go ahead. I don't even know who, who should start. Yannette, why don't you start? <laughs> Anyway, I, um, I was just going to uh, mention is that I really think it's um, the lack of not, I wouldn't say education, it's just access to these resources and information because it's not information that's taught to us in schools or even really in college. It's unless you're in this space where, you know, these issues are being discussed and you're in the room where the, you're in the legislature and you're watching how everything works, you're not really going to understand how to navigate it. So when people are advocating for, um, minimum wage and increasing minimum wage in their city or ha they don't even know how to go about even starting that process. And that's not something that is easily accessible to them. And a lot of times people who are directly impacted by these issues don't have the time or the resources to be going out and really fighting these issues because they're just trying to survive. Um, and what I've seen in this county is uh, I've interacted with people who can't even read. Uh, and that's another reason why they don't vote. Um, and a lot of them are also returning citizens. We have a great returning citizen population, and even though they might have been released uh, in the last 10, 20 years, they're still being directly, uh, still being impacted by the consequences of their of being labeled as a felon, um, and they're still being disenfranchised. And it's, I've seen it in a lot of different ways, and I think the way that our education system failing our students is also hurting us in our democracy because these same people are going up and can't even read. Um, so we're failing them, and then 
in return, we can't be upset that they're not voting because uh, we're not really giving them the resources or even the access to. Mm-hmm. Raj. Yeah, I think, uh, Unette, you brought up a lot of uh, good points. And um, since Chris, Unette, and I are from a direct action organizing background, we usually uh, like to focus on um, folks who are directly impacted by a lot of policies and institutions that seek out to marginalize and oppress them. And uh, we want to organize them and let them know what their power is in the situation. But uh, I think an often overlooked segment of the youth population are uh, ones that have – certain amounts of privilege, uh, whether it be the family that you come from, the school that you go to, where you grow up. And I think an important thing moving on in the future will be finding out how to engage those folks and figuring out how they can be organized and be a part of this fight as well. Because I'm sure, as uh, you both know, Mustafa, uh, and uh, um, that in the past, all the successful social movements have come from those with privilege speaking out and standing up for uh, those without. And this isn't to say that we need saviors coming in and helping us out, but at the end of the day, uh, we do need people to kind of lay it on the line a little bit and and show out for those who, who always don't have the opportunity to do that. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, you know, that there is needs to be a paradigm shift. So, you know, if we're going to have some real talk, the way that some of the funding is set up, around civic engagement, around getting people to vote, uh, goes to organizations who have sort of a traditional way of approaching those issues. Um, At the Hip Hop Caucus, we have the Respect My Vote campaign, utilizing artists and entertainers and making sure that culture is a part of that process. It's the central part of the process, which really uh, reaches people and touches them in a different way because they are seeing individuals who come from where they come from. They're seeing individuals uh, who they respect, uh, who are artists um, and poets and and writers and all these different types of things. That is a different way uh, of kind of connecting with folks um, and and helping them to understand, in the words that you use, that they have power. Um, So I think that we need to really begin to think critically about how we reach people and where we reach them. Mustafa, is is respect my vote, is that a... um that was uh, Mustafa that was just speaking, was it? Yes, it yes. was, oh, and we're out, of ti- we're out of time. Okay, all right. We're out of time, Ernesto. That no was uh, uh, Mustafa Ali. He's a senior vice president of the Hip Hop Caucus. Ernesto Arce, Arce. Ernesto Arce is in Los Angeles, California, at KPFK. Uh, also, Viraj Patel. Uh, he's here, a student activist, University of Maryland. And uh, our own Chris B.D., Chris Bangert Drowns. Thank you all for being with us. And, and Yannette Emanuel, who we can't forget. And Yannette Emanuel, yes, absolutely. We yes. cannot forget. Yeah, hold on to that. Maryland's on the phone, thank you. Thanks yes. a lot, guys. Thank, thank you for being with us. Thank you. And we're going to uh, close this hour with more young voices. This is Shakiva, Dalila Jalei, Serena Yang, and Cameron Bruno. They want us to vote. Shakiva Griswold is from the Bronx, a student at LaGuardia Community College. But who am I voting for? Elections whittled down to popularity contests, red versus blue, black versus white, logic versus heart. My heart won't allow me to participate in the farce America calls democracy. The fatter your wallet, the more presidential you become. Blame passed on through generations, expecting the babies to grow up, yet stay in a child's place. The fate of the world rests in our palms, yet our palms are slick with the oils clogging up our oceans. Oceans that will one day tsunami away the 1% tax breaks. I want Harriet Tubman's spirit to resurrect for one night just so she could point out the North Star to us again. I want to knock down every Columbus statue I see. In its place, gold-trimmed Kaepernick jerseys will gleam. I ain't afraid to fly. I ain't scared to duke it out with the patriarchy. I go Thanksgiving ham for my people so that we can feast later. Don't come looking for a place if you ain't put in any bread. So to the powers that be, prepare for the throne you've constructed for my ancestors' bones to crumble beneath you. Griswold is a member of Urban Word NYC. This is listener-sponsored WBAI. Somewhere in America, a CEO of an oil company 
is too busy counting his dollars to worry about the sun swallowing us whole. New York City student Dalila Jolay is a member of Urban Word NYC. Somewhere in America, a white person claims that all lives matter, then cheers when our military drops bombs and drones on five-year-olds in, insert Middle Eastern country here. Somewhere in America, employers think that workers simply shouldn't get sick if they don't want to lose all their money to hospital bills because they don't want to pay for health care. Somewhere in America, police officers see a license to kill where a black person should be. Somewhere in America, a mother crosses the U.S.-Mexico border after a lifetime of hardship only to have her child stolen from her and placed in a cage indefinitely. Somewhere in America, a man says he is pro-life in order to justify the use of women's wombs as his personal breeding ground. Somewhere in America, a woman is forced to carry the burden of trauma while her rapist becomes a judge on the Supreme Court and passes laws that allow other rapists to walk free like he did. Somewhere in America, a trans person is brave enough to step out of the closet for the first time while our president works to erase them out of existence. Somewhere in America, members of the NRA lobby for legislation that allows people to continue using school children as target practice. Somewhere in America, a black teenager is being read his Miranda rights instead of his high school diploma, and the slave trade is continued through the school-to-prison pipeline, but people call it justice. Somewhere in America, someone is turning 18, and they choose to dig their own grave instead of registering to vote because they have lost faith in a system that was built to oppress them. And that is how they win. So somewhere in America, I am standing here begging you to vote. Hold elected officials responsible. Stand up for your rights. Scream cries of liberation just like your ancestors did. Remember what is at stake. Demand you be seen as you are, not criminal, not terrorist, not alien, human. This is listener-sponsored WBS. You're in tune to Pacifica Radio's national midterm election coverage. Let America be America again, reimagining the American dream. We invite you to support your local community radio station. Stay with us.
Greetings, I'm Askia Mohammed in Washington, D.C. with Mustafa Ali. And Ernesto Arce is in Los Angeles, California with us. We have some headlines as we move into the final hour of Pacifica Radio's coverage, Let America Be America Again, Reimagining the American Dream. In the District of Columbia, both Alyssa Silverman and Anita Bonds have been reelected to the D.C. Council. Democrat Sherise Davids, unseated Republican Representative Keith Yoder in Kansas City, in the 3rd District, she will be the nation's first LGBT Native American woman in Congress. Two Native women now, we are reporting, elected to Congress. NPR reports Democrat Rashida Talib in Michigan's 13th District in Mi and Minnesota Democrat Ilhan Omar from the state's 5th District become the first Muslim women elected to Congress tonight. And 29-year-old uh, Democrat Alejandro Ocasio-Cortez became the youngest woman elected to Congress in New York's 14th District. There are some bright signs to report, aren't there, Ernesto? 